Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the podcast that simply does not dream of labor. Today we have Laura, Bianca, Helen, and Zoe. And today we're talking with Sarah Jaffe. Welcome back to the pod, Sarah. We're so happy to have you back. I'm happy to be here as always. Yes. Um, If you have been living under a rock and don't know, uh, Sarah is an incredible labor journalist. She's the author of Necessary Trouble, Americans in Revolt, and also of Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone, which is her new book, which is what we will be discussing today. Uh, So Sarah, welcome back. I want to tell us a little bit more about yourself. What's your deal? What have you been up to? And how are you so hot and smart? (laughs) What's my deal? My deal is boring as hell like everyone else's right now, right? I'm living alone in this apartment that does not actually belong to me in Brooklyn with a stack of books and a portrait of Rosa Luxemburg. And (laughs) that is not a lie. And also a portrait of Emma Emma Goldman behind me. um, And yeah, and I wrote this book and and now it's out in the world and I'm exhausted. Uh, (laughs) That's my story right now because work sucks. Work sucks and it won't love you back. No, not even (laughs) when you write a book. Not even when you write a book about that. And I was kind of gushing to Sarah a little bit before the episode started, but just to kind of kick us off, I I think we all wanted to express genuine awe and gratitude mm-hmm. for the fact that this book does exist, um, because I think, uh, and I think as all of our listeners will get by the time we're done with this interview, but A, just go get the book, um, I think that it puts really intentional language and research and firsthand accounts and weaves them all together in this way that just makes the extreme malaise and fatigue we feel even in jobs that we love even in jobs that feel quote-unquote fulfilling the the exhaustion of life under capitalism um, and life under work under labor you know, also touching on the unpaid labor in the home, which we will get to as well. Like it just it for me, it felt like such a validating experience to read this book and be like, OK, so I've been feeling this way. But because labor is designed to make us all feel so fucking isolated, it's it can feel like you're alone in those feelings. And then to read an entire book of firsthand accounts from a myriad of industries um, as well as historical analysis and re- and like scholarly research kind of putting that all together it just it it really is an incredible feat and so fucking good job <laughs> thank you I'm just sitting here blushing that's all <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to the audiobook version so I also feel like just the past like couple weeks when I've been like cooking cleaning anything you've just been like 
You've been telling me all these things. I've been spending so much time with you. Yeah. And I'm like, now she's here live. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I did indeed read the own audiobook, which like talk about work. Oh my God. I was going to say, I can't imagine. Because you're just like reading your own book off of an iPad for days on end. Um, But yeah, so you've just been hanging out with me for for quite a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a gift. It was, a, it was a great time. If you like truly. it, I'm happy. Yes, yes. <laughs> That's a lot of me, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so like many other people in the United States, I watched the Super Bowl on Sunday. Um, and there were fucking multiple commercials about being part of a work family and loving your job. And then the icing on the cake for me was the audacity of Dolly Parton changing her own lyrics in a commercial to quote finding a bunch of meaning instead of it's all taking and no giving so it just made me want to die and just really illustrates how culturally ingrained the myth of the labor of love is um and of course it made me think of your book and your book looks at the inherent work culture under neoliberal capitalism. And I was thinking a lot about how even when you're meeting someone new, one of their first questions is probably going to be, what do you do? And they don't mean for fun, right? They It's just something that's so normalized. Um, and I know it might seem simple, but what do you mean by work won't love you back? Yeah, I, I Dolly, I have so many feelings about Dolly. <laughs> right? Um, I was so pissed. Oh, Dolly, why? But um, so... I wanted to write a book that sort of reminds everyone that we don't work to find fulfillment. We work because we need to get a paycheck or as there's a Selma James quotation somewhere in the book where she says, we work because we and our children would starve if we didn't. And it really is that simple. You know, I am absolutely freaking exhausted right now. And I do not get a break because there is no break. There is no break to have. Um, And it's, it's not like, oh, I find this unfulfilling at the moment, so I can just cancel all of the phone calls and the Zoom meetings and the podcasts and the whatever, and I would never cancel you guys because you Aww. were my favorites. But You could, and we would know. understand, though. Um, but, but, like, I can't do that, really, right? Yeah. Because I have to continue to be me, which requires that constant damn hustle, which is why I'm so disappointed at people trying to glamorize it, because it sucks. And... That this is even more true. Like, I think Dolly is actually really useful in this way because, like, the original Nine to Five was written for this album that came out in 1980, for this movie that came out in 1980, that was based in the story of actual clerical workers who organized in an organization called Nine to Five. If you guys haven't had Ellen Bravo on before, you should have Ellen Bravo on. She was involved in Nine to Five. She's um, my labor movement auntie hero queen and she's an excellent podcast guest so i'm just saying uh, oh thank you bravo i love her so much um and yeah so that was that was a movie that came out in 1980 that was like this big deal because it um it also is a wonderful celebration of boss napping which you know um the french are much better at than we are but you know it's a story of of three women who are being treated horribly in all the different ways that you can be treated horribly at work who kidnap their boss unionize their workplace and run it as a cooperative And that was 1980. Um, That was the year that Ronald Reagan became president, right? The year that Ronald Reagan gets elected. Margaret Thatcher is already running things in the UK and destroying the miners' unions. And there's there's other great songs about work on that 9 to 5 album, too. She has a song about migrant workers. Like, she's just, like, 
it's a really good album full of songs about being a worker. And now here we are in 2021 and Dolly is getting paid a lot of money, which I don't begrudge Dolly getting paid, but like to write a song about how now we are supposed to find meaning in our side hustle. And you're just like, oh, that's actually a big change. In 1980 was also the year I was born. So in my lifetime, that's the story of work. And so in thinking about like why we're sold this whole narrative about work and love. I actually had to figure out like where that started. And it's not actually that old a story, except for some workers, which I'm sure we will get into which workers they are, spoiler alert, mostly women. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, you know, you, you, my, my buddy Chucky, who was just texting me, who was in the introduction of the book, because I met him um, when I was reporting on the Lordstown plant closing. You know, he got a job at Lordstown, or he got a job at a different GM plant, actually, right at high school. And like, he didn't expect to like get fulfillment from working at whatever he got a pension he was really excited that he was going to get a pension right and that was like I, I mean I don't want to go back to working in factories but there is something about the change from you know that you're going to the job because it will give you a decent paycheck and a pension and the weekends off rather than you're going to a job because it's going to be fulfilling yay side hustle five to nine after your nine to five please kill me yeah please so one question I wanted to ask sort of at the top of this interview is pretty simple, but it's just this, like, what inspired you to write this book? <laughs> Lots of shitty jobs. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know if I've talked about this on, on before, but like I finished college in 2002 and then grad school in 2009 so, right. So my entire working life has been sort of in the wake of all of these various crises of work that we haven't really acknowledged as being crises of work. And so, you know, I finished college thinking like, oh, I'm going to get a job. I, I graduated with like good grades from a pretty good school. Like I should get a job waiting tables, which is what I did for several years um, and working in retail for several years, because that is what was out there when you had an English degree. Sorry, mom. Um, <laughs> and then I went to journalism school and I graduated and I did get a job, which was really exciting. Oh, my God, this actually worked this time. And a lot of the conditions that I was working in were very similar, actually, to the conditions that I've been working in as a waitress, as a retail store clerk. Right. And then I'm, I'm writing about labor because it turns out that when you have a lot of shitty jobs in your life, it makes you really interested in, in the issues of work. And over and over again, I'm hearing similar stories. And like, I think the crisis in 2008, 2009 ratcheted up this idea that we should be grateful for just having a job, any Ugh. job, let alone, you know, your fulfilling job, because, you know, there are 20 other people who want to be journalists just like you that I could hire for less money. So, you know, mm. don't you dare ask for a raise, that kind of garbage. Yeah. And so I, I, in trying to think about like, okay, what do these things have in common? What is it that, that is going on here in all of these different kinds of work that I'm talking to people about what's changing over the course of, you know, of these particular crises of the previous crises that created neoliberalism in the first place. Um, and how is that change brought us to this point where again, you know, five to nine hustle, Super Bowl. I want to die. I also really mad about the Bruce Springsteen ad. Oh my god! Oh yeah, I was screaming. I was fucking screaming. 
the the Springsteen ad that's just like a, a Joe Biden ad, and I'm just like, why? Yeah. Why is this happening to me? Heal right now? the divide. Heal the divide. I'm just like, fuck you guys. Yeah, Grandpa Bruce, like, no, bring back Nebraska. Um, exactly. Anyway, I think a lot of what you just said kind of resonates with me as well. Um, I graduated college in 2019, and I was kind of experiencing a similar thing where I was like trying to. I had like law school plans. I still kind of have law school plans. So I was like trying to get paralegal jobs um, and I got one that was like on extremely shaky legs and I ended up getting laid off in March because of the pandemic. But I was feeling very like isolated in that experience because a lot of my friends where I went to school got these like very uh, shiny like finance consulting jobs mm-hmm. that were like obviously very insulated because of their financial resources. So they like, you know, went remote immediately have been given lots of cushy resources. And I was like the only one of my close friends who'd like gotten laid off. And like, I was like, I just feel like I'm so alone in this experience, even though I knew that like a bunch of other people like all over the world and the country were getting laid off or had lost their jobs. I was just like, is this something that I did? Like some, like what personal failures did I incur to like be in this position? Which brings me to this question that I had, which is in the intro of your book, you laid out this connection between Uh, like neoliberalism, capitalism, and the system we call going to work here. And you argue that like because of capitalism and neoliberalism, we have this like illusion of choice. Like we have this like kaleidoscopic range of choices for like things we can do. Like we can do anything you want. You can do anything you put your minds to, like whatever, which can then lead to like an individualization of everyone's experience, even those that are like largely affected by institutions and societal structures. So it's like, oh, like you chose to do this job when you don't enjoy it, when you're struggling at it, when you lose your job, then that's also like an individual choice or an individual shortcoming, which is like obviously a very flawed reasoning pattern. So did you have any more thoughts about like this like individual versus institutional responsibility issue? And also do you see the pandemic kind of bringing this into even sharper relief? Yeah, Yeah, it's so interesting because like a lot of people want me to give them advice in this book. People are like mad that my final chapter isn't like a five point plan about how to fix your life. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, that's I'm so sorry. fucked up. That's I'm just like, hey, can you do I more labor for us? Advice. My entire point is that it's not you, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and also like, good Lord, you should not ask me for advice. My life is a mess. Um, but like th- this, this whole idea that it's, you right like I, I i my point in writing this book is to point out like it's not it's not you it's work um it's not you it's capitalism but like the way that we still can't sort of get beyond the idea that there's something personally we can do to hack capitalism mm-hmm. and you know it, it's so frustrating to me at some point because i'm like I, I just spent 400 pages explaining to you that this is a political problem and you're still mad that I won't tell you like what time to wake up and like, look, I can give you advice as like a person who, you know, who has worked from home for 10 years. Like I recommend showering. Showering is great. Um, Big fan of not working in bed, although I'm working next to my bed right now. Same. (laughs) You know, eh. Um, boundaries, these things. Yeah, and it's all a feature of the way that we've been sold this thing, right? And like the the project of neoliberalism, there are like 20 different phrases that I love for sort of describing the project, right? Like I forget who it was that said, you know, that it might have been Jeremy Gilbert that said like, 
neoliberalism is a process of crushing social solidarity, right? That's one important thing to remember about it. But also that the thing that I use in the introduction is from my friend, Adam Kotzko, who is, um, I'm sad Ambria is not here because Ambria went to school under Adam Kotzko. Um, he wrote a couple of books about the devil and neoliberalism, which are great. I highly recommend them. And so his book, neoliberal, well, his book, The Prince of This World, is an explanation of how we got to this point where we are individually blamed for everything. And then neoliberalism's demons really expands on this. And like, so he argues that neoliberalism is essentially a vast machine for generating blame. And so that means that we are always to blame for whatever goes wrong in our lives, right? Because we had the choice, we have the illusion of choice, but like we, we have the choice. So I chose to go to the university that I did. Not that I couldn't get into the fancy ones because my dad didn't have enough money to donate to Columbia. So I didn't get in as a legacy admission because he didn't give them any money. And you know, like, right, like there, there are all these ideas that I made choices that are all my fault that I got here and not whatever. And I'm 40 years old and I'm sublet hopping because it's somehow like I must have done something wrong or I must have chosen it and therefore must like it, which is like really screwed up if you think about that logic, right? Like if, if you were, there's limited utility in comparing capitalism to your bad boyfriend, but like <laughs> if you were dating someone who every time something went wrong, they were like, well, it must be your fault. Mm. You would pro your friends would probably <gasps> all be like, that person, they are abusive. But like we're in this relationship with like, only with you know inanimate objects right because the part where it's all about crushing social solidarity means that unions are dead and all sorts of other places of working class interaction are dead and then now we're in a pandemic so we can't even go to the damn bar um and <laughs> we literally can't interact except on zoom which is terrible and yeah so we're all alone and we're being blamed for everything that happens to us exactly and like no wonder we're all exhausted depressed miserable 10 times more so because again we're in the pandemic and we can't even go to the bar um and yeah and that's just like it's profoundly depressing and like i know all of this shit and i'm still depressed you know like it's it's really really hard to shake out of it and that's sort of back to my my like why do people expect me to fix their lives for them question is like Yo, I wish I could hack capitalism because I'd be a lot more famous than I am and I would be able to afford, afford an apartment. <laughs> but I cannot do that because we actually have to do it as collective organization. So, of course, as you alluded to, you talk about care work and housework as historically women's work. Um you know, as well as thinking about the ability for white women to hire women of color to do that work inside of the home instead. Um, and you you have a Selma James quote in your book that is, to the degree that we organize a struggle for wages for the work we do in the home, we demand that work in the home be considered as work, which like all work in a capitalist society is forced work, which we do not do for love, but because like every other worker, we and our children would starve if we stopped. And like that quote just was, of course, just like a punch to the face of exactly the point, right? Um, so could you talk a bit more about like the connection between 
gender and the expectation of labor of love and love of labor, both in the home and as like care work. Yeah, I remember when I first read Selma James and I was working at Alternet and PM Press, PM Press, right? Anyway, her publisher sent me a press release saying we are publishing this collection of Selma James's works. Would you like it? And I was like, this sounds amazing. And it was. And everybody should go buy that book. Um, it's called Sex, Race, and Class, The Perspective of Winning. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and so Selma was a foundational thinker of the Wages for Housework movement, along with Silvia Federici, Mario Rosa della Costa, um, and many, many, many other brilliant women. And they were, and this was in the 1970s, you know, this is post-Betty for Dan. Mm. And they are arguing that sort of that simply going into the workplace and exiting the home by choosing paid work is actually not going to solve our problems. That, you know, this is the Betty Friedan argument, right? That like women are middle, middle class white women basically are bored in the home. And so they should get jobs and they should be allowed to get the same jobs as middle class white men get because they're bored. Um, and I, spoiler alert, think Betty Friedan's got a lot to answer for in our current <laughs> expectation that we love work. Yep. Because it was literally being pitched as some, as like an extension of what it had already been. I get into this in the nonprofit work chapter, right? That like work for middle-class white women was always sort of pitched as like a hobby to get you out of the house, dear. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's mm. anyway. So the wages for housework movement instead says like, look, we're already working. You know, women have been pushed into the workplace because, spoiler like, alert, like, men's industrial labor is collapsing because capital figured out that it could ship it to India, Bangladesh, and China for less money. Love the and, race to the bottom. Right, exactly. Where, you know, it is now being done by women of color in horrifying conditions. Exactly. Who knew? Um, Selma James, that's who. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, so solving the problem of women's misery under capitalist patriarchy was not going to be done by just like going into the paid workplace. Actually, we need to solve the the problem of the expectation that women's work in the home is just something that we do naturally out of love. Um, The state of my kitchen will tell you that that is not true. (laughs) 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 Today I need to do some cleaning. And like the way that they argued for that was to say that we should be paid because the housework that we do is actually important reproductive labor that sustains the edifice of capitalism that if we did not have children raise children clean up after the children take care of our men soothe the men when they come home from work make their lives livable when they are going to a crappy job then the entire thing would fall into a thousand pieces and so wages for housework yeah was to recognize that housework was work. And it's interesting because like some of the wages for housework thinkers um, wanted to literally be paid a wage and others were like, we want to be offered the wage so we can say no. Um, And so either way though, it's a a tension that I think is productive that people don't like that answer either, that everything is a dialectic, but it's true. And um, the way that that struggle like learning about that way of thinking allowed me to see why for instance everybody is blaming teachers right now for school Uh being remote Uh as if teachers are not working their asses off teaching remotely again i wish ambria was here but she's probably teaching remotely right now so like that that question of 
the work that is appropriate for women to do, um, that women are allowed to do, that women are pretty much always underpaid for doing, and that that is the work that is actually expanded in the wake of the destruction, automation, outsourcing of industrial labor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we have an economy now that's basically held up by quote unquote pink collar work. And again, this sort of expectations that are being heaped on teachers right now to solve all of the problems of a pandemic by walking back into school buildings in order to, I don't know, create breeding grounds for the virus. Like I, none of this makes sense, but nevertheless, we sort of blame teachers for it. And I've been thinking about this line from Megan Erickson um, in her book, Class War, which is also great and also very relevant right now. Um, where she says something along the lines of, you know, when we, when the failure of teachers is akin to the failure of mothers, where they they fail and it's considered like monstrous and just oh, yeah. impossible and like sociopathic, right? In a way that like, you know, if you fail at like working on the assembly line, you don't get the same level of just like moral garbage heaped on you. Gaslighting, you know? yeah. Um, and yeah, and so I think that's that, we have to understand this as like partly a feature of feminized work becoming a much, much bigger part of the economy to the point where like a lot of men are doing these things. Like last quote for this answer is like Bethany Morton, um, who wrote the wonderful book to serve God in Walmart. You know, she argues that like the fundamental story of the, the neoliberal economy is not the exciting knowledge economy job at, at Apple or Amazon or whatever. It's women, it's men becoming feminized clerks right it's men working at walmart basically um, and she sort of calls it like the thing we talk about is like post-fordism she called it walmartism and you know i think it's important that like jeff bezos you know is getting a lot of credit for things right now but essentially all he did was like take the things that walmart had innovated and put them all on the internet so he's not even that smart man jeff bezos <laughs> unsurprising you heard it here first <laughs> Um, yeah, I think that the end. <laughs> um, goes well into another um, quote from the book that I wanted to read um, about kind of like the ties of nuclear family to labor. Um, so the family as romantic escape from the burdens of work was a bourgeois ideal that trickled downward. Like most such gifts, it was anything but. The middle classes were able to marry for love rather than simply for money. The white middle class housewife could hire help to do the hard physical labor of housework, thus devoting herself to the romanticized emotional work. But working class women still had to do it all. There is also real love in a family, which is precisely what makes it and its surrounding ideologies so stickly. So sticky. I don't know what stickly means. Um, <laughs> As Angela Davis observed in Women and Capitalism, the family fulfills very real human needs, needs which cease to demand at least minimal fulfillment only when human beings have long since ceased to be human. In capitalist society, the woman has the special mission of being both reservoir and receptacle for a whole range of human emotions otherwise banished from society. Um, and I wanted to ask specifically, um, not just about kind of like the broader reproductive labor we've been talking about, but reproduction in the sense of like literal baby making, um, because I thought you made some really interesting points in the book. Um, one about kind of like anti-abortion policies and how that's tied to 
labor and, you know, creating more workers. Um, and then also the idea kind of on the other end of that spectrum of like companies offering to like freeze eggs for employees to like mm-hmm. keep them as workers longer. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to kind of talk more about like how reproductive justice is also like a labor rights issue. So many ways, right? Um, first of all, I'm just really glad that you read that Angela Davis line because it is literally like tattoo it on my chest. I yes. love that line so much. I was <laughs> reading again, like I can um, totally remember exactly where I was when I read that. I was reading the Angela Davis reader sitting on the couch with some ancient dude that I was dating at the time who was grading papers and complaining about his students. And I was reading Angela Davis and I remember just like smacking him being like listen to this <laughs> and then i dumped him the end the end um, life, life tips from angela davis bye um, bitch <laughs> love that bitch meaning your ex-boyfriend <laughs> yeah. um and so anyway the the question of like actual reproduction right there's a oh also a wonderful sylvia federici line in the book somewhere about how um the only true labor saving devices women have used since the 1970s have been contraceptives yes <laughs> which is great um, and yeah, so to understand reproductive work as, as labor, like literal physical reproductive work as labor is really messy and complicated. Like just look at how many people throw fits over Sophie Lewis to understand why people get like real mad at the idea that giving birth is also work. And the idea that the family is this like entire site of tensions, right? Is is really complicated and messy. I was saying to um, my publicist actually this morning where she was pitching me to another podcast um, that the, the sort of privatization of kids is really what's at the heart of this fight over public schools reopening because it's all, we're getting all of these articles about how stressed moms are, which apparently we only care about how stressed moms are when we can dump it on teachers. Normally, and I'm imagine sorry, being a teacher and a, a mom simultaneously. Right. Well, yes, 77% of teachers in the US or something, 76 to 77% of teachers in the US are women. Right. That means a whole lot of them are moms. Right. Um, but yeah, like how often is anybody proposing actual solutions for the fact that moms are stressed? Right now, right? Nobody is saying like, oh, wages for housework. They are talking about expanded uh, child tax credit, which is great and we should get that. Um, But don't let Mitt Romney abolish all other forms of welfare in order to do it. (laughs) But like, anyway, I'm obsessed with this policy proposal because it's actually like a step back towards acknowledging that like the government should in fact give people money for having children. It is a somewhat step towards wages for housework. But like most of these articles now about moms being stressed are not about how moms should get wages for housework. They are about how moms need a break. So therefore send the teachers back in to once again, create massive breeding grounds for spreading the new variants of this virus that are 30 to 40% more contagious. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's, um, it's just like the definition of insanity. It's, yeah, it's it's bonkers. So the, but like the privatization of kids, which, which, Jamie thought was very funny, but like, it's true, right? The idea that like you give birth to a child and therefore you individual human are the only one who's responsible for it. Even like, you know, probably if you are a woman who has given birth to a child, you are going to be presumed more responsible for it than the presumed dad who is out there somewhere. Maybe, you know, he comes home and pays attention to his kid after work. But like the expectation that you are going to be like singularly responsible for this thing that has been gestated in your body um, and that society has no responsibility for it at all. 
that we should not be concerned about it, that I don't have children and therefore it is not my concern that other people do. Um, this is just so backwards and also like so counter to the way like, you know, many thousands of years of human evolution and history, actually like this is not how we live, right? The idea that like, I keep joking about how heteronormative COVID is because it's just like pushing everybody back into your like coupled up home. And that's who you can see is like your, your partner who's presumed again to be a heterosexual monogamous couple, right? That that's sort of the way things are. And like the way that I structure my life, which is that I do not have a single monogamous partner at this moment, nor am I particularly looking for one, but I get my emotional support and whatever from a variety of friends who are in a variety of places. And now basically pandemic rules are like pick one. Yeah. And that's exhausting for everyone to just be like, there's this one person who gets to be around. Who gets to physically else. touch me or whatever. Right. right. <laughs> That's the family. That's like the nuclear family, uh, right? Is it's like, yeah. these are the people. These are the people you get to have. And everybody else is over here. And Margaret Thatcher, you know, there is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families. And that's it. That's like the largest unit of solidarity we're allowed to experience, which is just such a hunk of garbage. And I... I want to say, and I know that um, Sarah does touch on this in the book, but we're talking about all these things in in a binary because historically that is uh, how it has worked out. And um, obviously when we're talking about women, it's often like people who were raised as girls. Um, And in fact, like this is this history of the work is actually how we produce that binary, right? right? Exactly. The way the the reason that we think of women and men as like different types of people who do different things is a, a result of like structures of work that have pushed people into different tracks. Yeah. So I am expected because I am a cisgender woman to therefore be naturally good at the kind of caring labor that they, that people assume that women are good at. And that that's, that's just sort of a product of being born with, you know, a vagina. I don't get it. Um, That's weird. These are skills that any human can learn that like, but we produce this entire society that's built on this idea of men's work and women's work. That is, is, Again, it's ridiculous. It's it's bonkers to assume that like any person is naturally going to be good at like teaching or nursing because they were born with body parts that somebody pointed at and said, girl, mm. it's just crazy, right? To think that that's, that's true. But like we, we also, this is also how racism is constructed was like to justify stealing black people from Africa to put them to work was by saying that they're just naturally good at this kind of work. They secretly love being slaves. Totally. That is a good transition into what I wanted to ask next. Um, In your book, you talk about how women of color and particularly black women um, in the United States Uh, had a historical hand in organizing domestic laborers. Um, And you write that Ella Baker and Marvel Cook wrote about this market. Um, And they, and this is a quote from them. Um, Not only is human labor 
bartered and sold for for slave wage, but human love is also a marketable commodity. But whether it is a labor or love that is sold, economic necessity compels the sale. Um, that's the end of their quote. And then you continue to say the degrading conditions inspired women to organize and to insist that they no longer be treated like chattel. Um, can you talk about the connection between race, um, domestic labor and, um, organizing? Yeah. So, I mean, when we were, um, in the process of kidnapping black people from Africa to make them work as slaves and naturalizing the kinds of work that they would be good at, some of that work, not all of it because people who were enslaved did a lot of different types of work. But a lot of that work was domestic labor and was farm labor. And so even after emancipation, even after you know the failure of <clears throat> Sherman's promise, the, um, the way that partly like the Jim Crow regime is enforced is by carving out these kinds of work from labor law, right? So you don't get the protections of the Fair Labor Standards Act, any number of other things that are passed if you work in domestic work or the farm. And that work just happened to be the work that, you know, was the work that Black workers were allowed to do. So the thing that, that Ella Baker and Marvel Cook are writing about in that um, excerpt is the, the famous like Bronx slave markets, which were not actual slave markets. This is after emancipation, but they were places where black women gathered and people would pick them up for day labor. And so somebody would come along, look at these women who are standing there and say like, oh, I want that one and take them home for a day's worth of work, which maybe they got paid for at the end of it. Um, and these were the working conditions that people were given. That was what you could do in order to survive. And yet a lot of the work that you're expected to do in those situations is, is to literally like come home and take care of someone's children, to take care of someone's house. So even though you were being reduced to these god awful working conditions, right? These, these utterly dehumanizing moment of, of people just coming along and sort of looking at you and poking at you and saying like, huh, she looks good. Um, then you're supposed to go home and like treat their children with love and care. Mm. And, and that's the expectation though, right? That like, um, the, the woman that I profile in the domestic work chapter of the book, um, her name is Adela. She is a nanny in New York and she's um, organizes with Nast National Domestic Workers Alliance. And she organizes specifically with a group within NDWA called We Dream in Black that is specifically for Black domestic workers where they talk about this history of why it is and how it is that these ideas of who was good at this work and who was going to be paid what for it and treated in what way for it um, are rooted in slavery. And yet, you know, she does care about the kids that she takes care of, right? She works for one family that she's worked for for quite a few years now and during the pandemic she used to be a daytime worker so she would go home at the end of every day to her own family and then during covid she had to basically choose to be a live-in worker so she moved in with the family who employed her so her own kids are now at home and they're doing remote learning and everything by themselves and she's worrying about you know making sure her 10 year old is doing his homework while also taking care of the baby and the the small children of the family that pays her because that's the choice yeah and 
the tension of course is that like yeah you do end up caring for the the actual children like caring as in like emotionally as well as the work of caring and then you know in so many cases you find people who work as nannies as care workers who then are just sort of you know fired like oh you just don't get to see these kids again after the employer has expected for you for years to like build this caring relationship and invest all of your love and emotion in these children. And then they can just fire you tomorrow and be like, bye. And yeah, that's, that's one of the more clear examples of work will not love you back. Right. Like you are expected to love these kids, but like the boss doesn't love you. Right. And you're one of the family, except you're not at all. One of the family. Yeah. Take care of and raise my children and let them create massive attachments to you um, and then probably (laughs) allow me within my own family to create like a traumatic situation for my children when I decide your employment and labor are no longer needed. (laughs) Sorry. As like an educator and like someone who like works a lot with developmental psychology, it's just like all of those children are damaged now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's still a result, right? Like I, I, somebody asked me like, aren't we just pitting, you know, two kinds of women against each other? And I was like, well, what do you mean by clients friend? But also yeah. like, it is true That's that like there question. is no functional child <laughs> care in this country. So you either are up Shit's Creek or you hire somebody to privately take care of your kids, or maybe you're lucky enough to live somewhere where there's like a daycare center. But Mostly, you know, these are are situations that are left on individual people and individual families to solve because we haven't decided to solve them as a society. Yeah, definitely. This is like a slight shift in topics, but I wanted to talk about uh, what you discussed in chapter three, where you discussed the unionization of teachers. And I think one part that particularly stood out to me was that you mentioned that in the teachers that you had profiled, they were drawing a lot of inspiration from the Black Lives Matter movement in their organizing framework and their platform. So for example, they were fighting for an end to random searches of students and faculty, and they were also inspired by this um, divest and invest framework that's also, I guess, very abolitionist in nature. So like divesting from things like policing and other carceral structures and investing in like resources that would make students feel like basically like whole humans. And so my question is, how do you uh, envision the Black Lives Matter movement and the labor movements overlapping? And what are some other ways you might envision them drawing upon and amplifying each other? Yeah, I mean, Black people are workers, right? Like the the Mm -hmm. idea that like the labor movement, which is like a common problem within some unions as well, that like the Black people are over here and the workers are over here. And if there is one thing that I could just destroy forever, it would be that idea that like the workers are somehow a characteristic of like white masculinity Mm -hmm. and not one's position in the economy. But this is where I mentioned that Karen Lewis passed away this week and it's really fucking sad because um, without Karen Lewis and core within this Chicago teachers union, we would not, have the teachers movement that we have today and we would not have teachers doing things like drawing from the divest invest framework from black lives matter to talk about investing in public schools in ways that make students feel welcome and safe rather than like they're you know policed and harassed Mm -hmm. and it's because of black teachers like Karen lewis who experienced this you know as teachers saying like this is i see how black students are treated 
in the schools, right? I see how the kids that look like me are treated and the kids that, you know, don't are treated. I see which schools get invested in, in which neighborhoods and which schools get closed. Thanks, Rom. Um, and that you can't sort of understand anything about the denial of, of public resources in the U.S. without understanding racism and the way that it's been over and over again, the way to, to cut a program or to never have it in the first place is to tell people that Black people will get to use it. Mm. Therefore, it doesn't deserve resources. Um, and I spend a lot of time in that book chapter talking about sort of the history of segregated schools mm. and the history of um, fights around integration in, in a variety of ways, because they're kind of a fascination of mine because there's this implication that what schools need is to be integrated as if like the process, the, the presence of white children is what is going to make black children learn better. And it's like, no, it's the presence of resources and exactly. is often like <laughs> black teachers, you know, so when integrate, when school integration happens begrudgingly and through massive resistance, um, what happened to all the teachers, all the black teachers who had taught in the segregated schools, like, white parents maybe begrudgingly eventually got around to accepting that there would be black kids in their kids' school, but they were damned if their white kids were going to be taught by black teachers mm. whose experience was in black schools. Mm. So, you know, this happened as, as black teachers led the fight for integrated schools and then their thank you is screw you. Um, and so that history um, is so important and it's so interesting to me that like over and over and over again, um, that turns up in places like New York, where the communist-led teachers' union, just called the teachers' union, um, was full of teachers in places like Harlem and Bed-Stuy, like writing ethnic studies curricula way back mm -hmm. before we called them ethnic studies curricula. But they were writing curricula for their black and brown students to talk about the history of where those kids came from, of where and how things got to be the way they are. And this was one of the things that, you know, got them red scare purged out of the classroom. So um, the fact that, you know, now there are a whole lot of people who would like to red scare purge teachers out of the classroom who talk about Black Lives Matter is uh, not surprising given the history of the way we treat teachers. And yeah, I think that the labor movement in this country has often mistaken sort of common ideas or things that you know all workers have in common for like lowest common denominator so we can't talk about racism in the workplace because some of our workers don't under don't experience racism so we just have to talk about the problems that all of the workers have which like you know there are problems that all workers have right we, we all should get paid more get more time off we work too much um there are plenty of those things but also if you look now at like the story of organizing at Amazon, right? There's the the mm -hmm. campaign that's going on right now at the Bessemer, Alabama, um, Amazon distribution center, which is being led by black workers, both mm -hmm. within the distribution center and also from organized black workers from nearby poultry plants. And they are very clear that part of the reason, I mean, first of all, part of the reason these, you know, facilities get located in these places in the first place is to take advantage of black workers who have been historically denied labor rights. Um, I'm going to talk about black organizing in Alabama. I cannot recommend often and strongly enough Robin D.G. Kelly's Hammer and Ho, 
Mm-hmm. Um, Kellen is organizer snapping in the background, which is wonderful. Uh, <laughs> because that's <laughs> so good. And yeah, but also the first workers who actually got Amazon to bargain with them were Somali refugee workers, also at an Amazon distribution center in Minneapolis or outside of Minneapolis and organized with the Awood Center, who I need to email about an article right after I get off this call. And so if any of you are listening, answer my email. Um, because they were organizing not about lowest common denominator issues, but this is a worker center that's based in the Somali immigrant and refugee community in the Twin Cities, and that they were organizing around prayer time. And yeah, I'm not a Muslim. I'm an you know, agnostic Jew. That said the win of those workers to get access to prayer time was a win for every worker in the damn country because it made Amazon acknowledge that their workers were humans. And you couldn't do that just by being like, oh, well, we have to only bargain over wages and working hours. We actually have to bargain over everything that makes people people because that's actually the opposite of, of like how capital treats us, right? We can't exist in a world um i think the last time i was on a call with laura and zoe was the the goth (laughs) communism panel where i was talking about like capitalism does not allow us space to be fully human and so the best way to disrupt it is forcing it to acknowledge and give space for all of the full humanity of the people who are forced to work in crappy conditions and treated like interchangeable cogs in a machine yeah i had a question that I wanted to ask you that's kind of a silly question but since I thought of it I couldn't get it out of my head (laughs) which is do people ever like or have people since this book is I know it's come out very recently but have have people ever talked to you and been like no I actually do love my job though and if so what do you say to them (laughs) I mean I literally start the book with I love my work, right? Like I, right. I, I, I'm, I'm here for that. Like everybody that I interviewed in this book is doing work that at some point in time they enjoyed, they loved, they felt connected to, they felt really that it was really important. Mm-hmm. And like that's, yeah, it, it connects to the, the, you know, the advice question, right? right. Um, and I, I think I did a better job circumventing the first one than the, the advice question, which like people, I didn't, I didn't sort of spell out in the conclusion, like I am not here to give you advice. Um, the same way that I, I sort of spelled out in the introduction, like this is not the question. The question right. yeah. is how we are going to be treated by, you know, a capitalist workplace, whether or not we love it. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. And so I sort of like, like yeah, you probably, it may well not probably but like (laughs) you might well love your job at some point you are going to have a rude awakening that your job does not invest in you yeah the emotional resources and devotion and loyalty and commitment and all of these other things that we supposedly think goes along with the idea of love she's just not that into you But it's, it's so interesting, right? Because like, even in the really sort of male dominated professions, like the video game programmers that I spoke to, they're still getting told like, this is the family, you've joined the family, like literally the worst thing that I've ever heard in my life is the video game company that brands itself as a fampany which is like the most cursed portmanteau word that I've ever heard. It just sounds awful. It also sounds like masturbation. Um, (laughs) And you're just like, what? 
but that's that's literally in their branding right and i did not watch the super bowl because solidarity with colin kaepernick yes. and um i and also just like i find the fact that we've like forced professional sports back in during a pandemic feels like yeah. creepy to me yeah but also, i also like, just love the idea of watching men get brain damage before my very eyes you know no, it's it's can't, yeah yeah can't beat I mean, it frankly Kaepernick wants to play so I think he should be able to play but also like I'm a bit like keeping your brain is probably good I yeah produce yeah. many useful things like you said it's a dialectic <laughs> it's very good for the movement it's a good thing I like it please preserve it <laughs> but yeah like um oh god Colin Kaepernick I mean I talk about sports in the book too right the, yeah. this this expectation of loving your work and like the amount of of unpaid and unacknowledged labor that goes into like being Colin Kaepernick, right? Like how many years of, of peewee football or whatever it is they call it these days. I don't know. I'm, I'm 40. Um, <laughs> like, and like playing sports as like a child that goes into being as good at the game as someone like Colin Kaepernick to be able to be professional, to finally like get paid a bunch of money but like that's only if you make it that far so how many kids are getting brain damage when they're you know 12 to hopefully one day grow up and be a pro athlete and that's not even to talk about the massive college football industrial complex which i'm really really hoping um i do have one good thing to say about the biden administration which is that the person that joe biden put in as general counsel at the national labor relations board after firing peter robb who is the worst um, is the person who wrote the decision saying that Northwestern University football players were workers and had the right to unionize. Mm-hmm. And that guy is now running the show. And so I am really hopeful that we get a big old decision saying college athletes are workers. They should be paid. They should get to unionize. They should get the rights to their own fucking image. Yeah. Like just the yeah. ridiculousness of, of college sports just makes me like really angry on so many levels. Like the highest paid pl- um, public employee in your state is probably the football coach. What the hell? And that is a football coach who is coaching people who are doing the actual brain damaging work of being an athlete mm-hmm. who are getting paid nothing. So yeah, college football destroy it okay well as we are coming up on time um i did want to talk about the service industry (laughs) my favorite yes because we really haven't gotten into it yet and obviously your book spends quite a bit of time on it um one quote that i wanted to pull uh that you write is uh quote Walmart spread across America and the world coincided with but barely acknowledged the feminist revolution even as it hev- even as it relied heavily on the labor of women entering the workforce in droves end quote um, and as we have now seen via the pandemic, many service positions, you know, grocery store workers, servers, retailers, etc, have quote unquote become, essential workers which like lol right they've always been essential but um how does retail gender and the appearance and facade of joy like essentially the emotional caretaking that retailers have to do um to customers and how how all those things kind of connect as as our way to wrap up uh, this conversation with you. <laughs> uh, my the way to wrap up the conversation is tip the damn waitress. Um, yes, but like 
the way that the essential worker discourse happened is so fascinating to me, right? Because like, oh, it turns out that there's a lot of kinds of work that we really can't live without and they are not what we thought they were. Right. Um, and sorry, GameStop people, but like we can live quite well without Wall Street, but you yeah. can't quite well without like the workers at the Hunts Point, you know, um, whatchamacallit, uh, terminal market. Mm-hmm. where, you know, all of the vegetables for the, you know, small grocery stores across New York basically move through. Um, you can't live without the delivery person. You can't live without the person at your neighborhood grocery store. Um, you can't, you know, these are, this is actually the work that keeps us going and keeps us functioning. And yet it's incredibly low paid work. And like for a little while you saw places like, you know, grocery store chains like Kroger um, giving hazard pay to their workers. So they got an extra two bucks an hour. Most of that has ended, even though the pandemic has not. And you, you know, so we, we see this everywhere, right? It's not just in the U S it's also like the key worker discourse in the UK is, is also really intense. And the way that we end up sort of placing even more expectations on these workers who are already expected to sort of smile and put up with any number of horrible moments um, in order to get paid not enough money. It's really intense, right? Like I talked to so many people who were in the essential worker category over the last year, God, it's been a year, um, who would say things like, you know, they say I'm essential, but actually I'm expendable. Mm. And they feel like they're treated like they're expendable and that they they can just sort of keep marching in people like that. Um, They can just, you know, basically you get sick, we'll just fire you and replace you. And desperation, i.e. the government not coming through with the checks, um, forces people to make those choices right so like you know andrew cuomo now wants to reopen indoor dining in new york because once again everybody just really wants us all to die like i can't imagine why you would think this is a good idea right now right but i mean part of the reason they want to do it is because they don't want to be responsible for supporting people so if they say these things are can reopen then it's your own fault that you don't have a job and not because the restaurants are closed um And I read a really good article at Tribune magazine um, last month, I think, by uh, Polly Smith about like the extra emotional work of being an essential worker now, because like all of a sudden, like, you know, the grocery store worker, um, I'm currently subletting in a doorman building, which is a weird experience for me, but like often the doorman is the only person I've talked to in person in several days. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you go to the grocery store and it's like, this is like the first person that I've interacted with in a while and the weirdness of just like sort of moving around the grocery store trying not to get too close to anybody and then you go through the checkout line through a big thing of plexiglass and you're like hi and this article was about like you know people who are just like so starved for human content that they just contact that they really need to talk to the grocery store worker who is exhausted um and now is doing this extra amount of of caring labor because they're the only person that somebody has seen uh, postal workers or another one like hmm. the postal you know there was at least there they was have one. benefits most like retail workers won't have the benefits obviously yeah and the, and again like the the you know um whatchamacallit 
the hazard pay has been clawed back. So you right. don't get that anymore either. And but like, still, obviously the post office is, it's an egregious situation. Post office is wonderful. So, um, yeah, we love it. And we should save it. Yes. <laughs> but right, like the, the way that the already existent expectation that you are going to be smiling all the time, right? Um, that you will pretend at least to be happy and love your job because it is your job to project this at all times when you are working in, in retail or food service or any of these, you know, these industries, um, when you're a flight attendant, which is the, you know, the industry that Arlie Russell Hochschild was studying when she wrote about emotional labor. Um, you know, the idea behind emotional labor is not just like having emotions about your labor. It's producing an emotional state in someone else by manipulating your own emotions. So even if I'm exhausted and I'm working in the restaurant and my customer makes a terrible sexist joke and I have to just smile and grit my teeth and not murder him because I need his tips. And that is an added burden that you don't have to do in some other types of work, right? Like when I'm sitting here alone at my desk, I don't have to smile at it. I can cry and scream and throw a book across the room if I want to. Mm. Um, as long as the thing that I write comes out halfway decent at the other end. And, and often I do those things. <laughs> right. That that's not, you know, it doesn't require the same amount of like that I had to do when I was waiting tables. Yeah. Um, my my big political football sort of theory that I think we really need to grapple with is, you know, even though we've got Joe Biden now, so everything's great, right? Hmm. Um, is that the, the question of the shift to this feminized service economy is one of the reasons that we got Trump. Because, like, men don't like doing these jobs. And they are mad about things that women have had to put up with forever. And so... You get this anger of, you know, you don't get like the the manly man jobs for men anymore. You have to go work at Walmart and working at Walmart sucks, but like working at Walmart has always sucked. So how do we square this problem while not having space for essentially men being mad that they have to do things that they think are for girls, but also address the fact that these jobs are actually deeply immiserating for everyone who has to do them. Mm. Um, incredible point, uh, and a great way to end, uh, you know, we can, we can push the people who tell us to smile, whether it's our boss or, you know, a man passing us on the street, uh, and we can just put them in a garbage can and send them over Niagara Falls. Uh, <laughs> clear, clear Buffalonian humor. I'm just like, put that- your boss in a barrel and yes. send them over Niagara Falls. Exactly. I would love to right now. Yes. Always, but. <laughs> um, Sarah, this was so incredible. Everyone, go get the book, Work Won't Love You Back. Um, we uh, highly recommend that you get it from Sarah's bookshop link, which we will put into the episode description. Um, because guess what? That gives Sarah the most money, which is what we want. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. We love having you on. Thank you. So that was our episode. Um, As always, you can find us at Season of the Bee on Instagram and Twitter. Um, You can give us your money on Patreon at um, patreon.com slash Season of the Bitch. 
We have an incredible Discord. We have a reading group. We're reading Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower right now. Um, please go get Sarah's book. Again, that um, link will be in the description. Uh, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify. Okay, love you. <laughs> love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bitch. Oh.